0: The following podcast may contain graphic content and details that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Digital Forensics in Real Life. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Before we get into today's episode, we have a question for you. Are you a digital investigator or examiner? Have you worked on a case that has a great story or can teach us something interesting about digital forensics? We'd love to speak to you about being a guest on our show. Send an email to dfirl at magnetforensics.com explaining a bit about your case and we'll get back to you. Thanks. Today's guest is backed by popular demand, Larry McLean. You may remember Larry from our very first episode of DFIRL, Murder in St. Louis, The Remarkable Case of Pam Hupp. Today, he's here to discuss his work on another tragic case, the murder of Dorothy Hall by her ex-boyfriend, Terry Culberson. What's interesting about this case is how well it demonstrates one of the biggest strengths that digital evidence has over other kinds of evidence, the ability to show what's in a criminal's mind. Whether a crime was intentional or accidental has a big impact on sentencing in our justice system, and Larry's investigation shows how well digital devices can help us understand a perpetrator's guilty mind. And with that, here's Larry to talk about the case. Hi, Larry. How are you? Hey,
1: Kim. Nice to see you again.
0: So tell me how you came to know about this case.
1: As I remember this case, uh, I think, you know, I, I had been a regular detective, whatever that means, investigating everything from stolen bicycles to property crime to uh, violent crimes, including murder. But I had moved on and was a, a digital forensic examiner, a cyber detective, you know, uh uh, in a multi jurisdictional task force, but I still came from my parent agency that let me go, if you will, to that, that task force, multi jurisdictional. But one of the kind of caveats they asked, and I think this was a great one, was hey, if we really need them, we really need them. I mean, we, and they were really good about not calling constantly for every little thing. But when the big one went up, when the balloon went up, they they were going to call. So I was at home one night, and my phone rings, and it was dispatch, which was a little unusual. I was used to that in my previous regular detective life. You know, you have on call, and the phone rings in the middle of the night, and you're thinking, oh, Lord, here we go. You're trying to wake up and get to the phone. I'm on my way. Uh, and sure enough, I'm detached to the cyber, uh, the cyber crime task force. The phone rings and it's dispatched and says, we have a homicide and they want you to respond. I loved getting those calls. You might think that's a little bit odd. Yeah, like, (laughs) what a weirdo. Um, Not that I love, you know, crime and death and mayhem and all that, and I don't want to see anybody hurt, but I'm so glad they called Because my agency, and it really was a matter of, through all my training and education, through a lot of third independent parties, whether it's Fletzi or NCFI or private vendors or Magnet or any of those resources, you, you know, we always say in our training team, you don't know what you don't know. And my agency knew enough to know they don't know what they don't know. But I got a guy. That was their attitude. I got a guy. And they really didn't pull that string all the time. But they had a murder, uh, this one, we, and we weren't getting these every day. And they thought, uh, yeah, we want Larry to come out here. And the reason they did it is that on-scene response to a major crime, a critical incident, they would go in, and we had robust uh, resources in our area. So they would come in, you know, you get there, there's crime scene units, there's floodlights, there's detectives everywhere. They were smart enough, though to know not to put a bunch of detectives or personnel in the scene, right? If you've ever been through any homicide training, uh, um, you'll know, depending on what training, but you should really never have no more than four five people at the max inside a scene at any time. And we have ways to minimize that, right? So they have a homicide and they call and they say, we got a homicide. And I'm like, where's it at? And they tell me, and that's all I needed at that point, because I had a, uh, my vehicle, my bureau vehicle, that was a truck at that time, but it had all the equipment in it, and all I had really to do was, was rub the sleep out of my eyes, grab uh, uh, grab my shoes, put them on, get dressed, and head out the door.
0: So when you, you went directly to the scene then?
1: Directly to the scene from my house, yeah. It was late at night, I'm trying to remember, you know, sometimes uh, it sounds crazy, but you have a lot of homicides. Some parts of these can uh, run together without having a report sitting in front of you. But I drove directly to the scene. When I get to the scene, the incident commander at that time then briefs me to what we have going on.
0: So tell me, what was going on?
1: Yeah, the story goes, as I get there, it is in a uh, a mobile home park in the city, and I get to this mobile home park. Everybody's already been there. My impression is that, uh, and I'm sure I don't remember the exact timing, but they had been there for a little bit already doing whatever they had to do. But the briefing was this. There was a single occupant of that home who lived in that mobile home. His name was Terry Culberson. And Terry had been in a relationship and lived in that home for a time with a, uh, a female and that female's name was Dorothy Hall. Now, Terry at the time was 63, and Dorothy was 55. Uh, so it wasn't their first relationship, but they were uh, living together at that home. But they had broken up, and, and Dorothy had moved away several hours away. This is in the state of Missouri, and the area we're talking about is the St. Louis area. And Dorothy had left to go back to the boot heel of Missouri. That's what we called it. It's the lower southeast portion of Missouri so she moved back home but when she left I guess it was a contentious breakup she had left her items behind or several items behind not saying everything also there was some uh, the the Terry we'll call him the suspect in this case Terry Culberson had loaned her or given her a truck that's still kind of debatable that she had so Dorothy had moved on with her life and was in a new relationship, and uh, at some point, Terry and Dorothy talked and made an arrangement for her to come back to retrieve her items or maybe give some items that she had back. Exchange of property is what it was. So Dorothy convinced her new boyfriend to drive her, and I think it's probably about three hours, uh, maybe three and a half, to, to the residence. So the new boyfriend drives, <clears throat> drives her there. He parks down the street. He's in sight of the residence, but he parks down the street, and she goes into the home, and a period of time elapses, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, something like that. And the homeowner, the suspect, Terry Culberson, comes out of the home, gets in his vehicle, and drives off and leaves. The boyfriend doesn't think anything of that. He just thinks, oh, he must have to go to work or she's doing what she has to do. I think he's kind of relieved that he, this guy's leaving and getting out of the area. About three or four hours pass. This guy sits there.
0: He doesn't go to the to the car? Or yeah,
1: to the- You and I are probably sitting here, look, we deal with all kinds of people. When we, I first heard that, when I'm getting briefed, I'm thinking, huh, you know, that That don't sound right. Uh, What's going on here? Maybe putting a little suspicious eye over that way, if you will. But no, he sits out there for a period of time. It's an extended period of time, if you ask me. And she's not coming out. So he gets concerned eventually. And he calls the the police department. They send a couple officers out there on a check the well-being. It's a simple call. Road officers get these all the time. He, you know, he calls up, hey, my girlfriend's went to her boyfriend's to get some stuff. He left. She's not coming back out. Can somebody just go by and check on her status, check the well-being? Sure, no problem. They sent two officers, and as the story goes, officers get to the front door. They begin to knock on that front door of that, that mobile home. Those are kind of thin, smaller doors, if you will, and the door isn't latched. It is actually not completely secure, and it comes open as they hit the door to knock on it, and right there to their lower right, sitting directly in front of them in what would be the living room area is uh, Dorothy, unfortunately, deceased. Uh, It's a dramatic scene, a lot of blood, but she has been shot, I believe it was, six times in the face, uh, as we later find out, and this is important, with a 38 caliber weapon. So, we have this crime scene there. And again, we have very robust, I always, you know, feel for anybody who who's scraping by or might not have everything that we have. But in our area, it's a modern metro area, you know, from helicopters to bomb squads to SWAT teams, we, we've got all that stuff, right? So the crime scene unit is there, and they're set up, and they're doing their thing, and they call me to the scene. I love that feeling. Don't always get it. But sometimes, like you said, when it works, it works. So they want to call me to the scene because as they're sitting there looking at the scene, they have the lens on of traditional forensics, not computer forensics, forensics, bloodborne pathogens, fingerprints, DNA, uh, footprints, you know, all the traditional criminal science, criminology uh, efforts that go into investigating a crime. That's what they have an eye on. But they know enough. Or have learned enough through a lot of education, a lot of experience that, hey, if we bring Larry or a Larry-like person, you know, a cyber detective to the crime scene, they can stand back. And I don't care about the blood. I don't care about the fingerprints. I don't care about the DNA. don't care about any of that. I mean, I do. But I'm going to stand there and look at what is the digital overlay? What is the digital footprint? of any crime scene that's where my eyes are focused on so i'm looking to go okay is there a router does it need to be interrogated are there mobile devices are there uh, associated peripheral devices and could they have a story to tell because here's what i'm looking for when i show up you know look they're working the crime scene we have a dead body the suspect is in the wind right he's gone And there are officers that are knocking on all the neighbors' doors trying to find a witness. Did anybody see anything? I'm there to do the same thing. But the witnesses I'm looking for are digital witnesses. I'm knocking on those digital doors looking for ones and zeros to talk to. And those digital witnesses, I would argue, are much more reliable people's interpretation, people's viewpoints, what they hear, what they see can be open to interpretation, right? And you might argue digital evidence can be to some degree, but it is ones and zeros, and it tells a story. So while the traditional crime scene unit people are there looking to follow the physical footprints, I'm there to go, hey, are there any digital footprints and can we follow them? And they might not tell a story, or they may. You know, when I first got there on this one, I'm thinking, okay, she shows up to get her stuff. Um, You know, I I can't remember at that time if I knew it was a prearranged meeting or not. But I'm thinking in my head, yeah, okay, the ex-girlfriend shows up. They get into a fight. He gets mad. He pulls out his gun, you know, Wild Wild West, and he shoots and he he kills her. Crime of Passion. Well, Crime of Passion in the state of Missouri – is a murder second degree. I know we have all different terms and we probably have an international audience, but in the state of Missouri, a crime, uh, that crime that I just described, the crime that is facing me, the crime I believe I see is a murder second degree. A murder second degree is a crime of passion, meaning I didn't mean to kill anybody. I didn't plan it. I didn't have this elaborate scheme, but You know, we got in this argument, and I killed that person. The difference is, and I'm not an attorney, and I'm not a judge, but in court, I know that's a lesser type crime. Still a very serious crime, but that murder second degree is going to not be eligible in this state, and I'm standing here still today, for the death penalty.
0: So you're you're there at the scene, you arrive, and— Set the scene for me. Tell me who you see in terms of police personnel or or who is there in terms of uh, working their specific jobs. You've got your job to do as well, but what's actually going on there? Tell me who you see.
1: So, you know, there's already an ambulance that's come to the scene. There's a fire truck to back up that ambulance. Obviously, that wasn't needed, but when the call comes out, you know, till you know, they respond. There are numerous police officers. There's crime scene tape up that has the thing blocked. There are at least two crime scene vans that are there with all of their associated equipment, including their response vehicle. They have like a a mini command post, which has uh, uh, basically a, a triage lab within it, if you will. And, uh, of course, most of our detective bureau is there. Uh, The commander is there um, kind of standing off to the side, letting the sergeant do his job. And then the other detectives are waiting to go there. But they, of those five people that I said, we try never to have more than five people on that scene. They want me to enter that scene. Because, again, they go in and they know what to look for. Footprints, fingerprints, DNA, all that stuff but I'm going to go in and I'm going to look for the digital footprint. Again, I mentioned, is there a router to be interrogated? Are there cell phones? Are there peripheral devices? Are there computers? Are they even in play, right? So we're, we're uh, initially dealing with this as exigent circumstances, and we get a follow-on search warrant, right? But I'm Go into the scene, and, and I kind of, it's going to be a little bit uh, macabre, but I remember that, you know, as a regular detective, I, especially when you have your on call, as a regular detective, you go through on call periods, you know, and you rarely went through an on call week where you didn't get some kind of call out, whether it was dramatic or not. You were constantly getting woken up and interrupted. But when I went to the cyber unit, when I detached from regular detective life to cyber detective life, we didn't get that many calls, it was rarer much rarer I would say and so I remember that uh, um, as I come through the door the body is laying right there and you can see the the wounds to the face and as I walk through the door the medical examiner is bent over the body and inserting a probe into the body. If you've dealt with many homicides or people out there who might not have one technique to try to get a temperature, internal temperature of the body to, uh, it's a standard procedure, uh, part of their kind of checklist, if you will, is to do what's called a liver probe. So the medical examiner investigator is doing a liver probe to get an internal temperature of the liver to try to use that to ascertain time of death. Now, still say we should do that. But what if they have a Fitbit? Or what if they have a fitness app attached to their smartwatch? There are other ways to do that. And that's part of our job. And part of my job at that time was to educate my agency and the agencies that I supported, which I really covered the Eastern District of Missouri. While, the, you know, the, the crime scene techs and the medical examiner and the lead detective are looking at the physical scene inside the residence, they bring me in, and I begin to work that scene in a clockwise manner, you know, doing that whole scan. But I'm not looking for the stuff they're looking for. I'm looking for the digital evidence or potential digital evidence. Where Are there any digital footprints?
0: So tell me what you see.
1: Well, I get in there, and I remember I, I began in a back room to the left, which was a bedroom that was an office, and it really contained the digital, uh, the d- digital devices. There was no phone. The the guys in the wind. In fact, just to kind of cut ahead, he he didn't get captured for ten days. I believe it was. He was caught in Oklahoma. U.S. Marshals tracked him down in Oklahoma. So we didn't have him in pocket that night. When he left that trailer after killing her, he was in the wind. So I go in there, but he did have several computer systems. He didn't even have a laptop. He had two tower systems, and that is. Crucial, I think, in critical incidences, major incidents, whatever term you want to put on it. Now, I know there's some probably uh, there will probably be people in this audience listening to me saying, well, that's really nice, Larry. I wish I had that ability. And I'm sorry if you don't. I'm just going to give you my methodology or thoughts. I have a, a friend. Uh, Kim has interviewed him. If you haven't listened to her podcast with our friend Chad Gish. Chad's a friend of mine from Nashville. He has the same methodology that I had. Or have, and he believes the same way. We have these discussions all the time that, uh, you know, evidence, digital evidence, we're overwhelmed. And I, I, I say this to people all the time. I get it. We're overwhelmed by the volume, the number of cases we have. We're overwhelmed by volume in the number of devices inside each case we had. And I'm talking about two computers in this one, so I know you're probably going, I wish. And three, we're overwhelmed by volume and the number or the size of volume inside each case, meaning, you know, we don't have 120 gig hard drives, right? We're terabytes or multi-terabytes inside each device we're dealing with, our cell phones with multi-gigabytes of data. So it's a volume issue. But I argue, okay, I know that it's volume. I, I get that. But right now, especially on the law enforcement, critical incident, major incident side, I would argue in the incident response side, taking it away from dead bodies here for a minute, but any of those sides, so corporate and law enforcement, I know I'm telling a tale of, of um, a law enforcement story, a murder, a very dramatic story, but I would say if there are corporate folks out there or consultants who are listening that are doing other type of cases, this applies just as well, and that is what I call TTE, time to evidence, meaning We had a model even back then when I'm telling this case, other people would use the model of, okay, you have a crime scene, there's digital devices, collect those devices and bring them to us and we'll get to them. Either we put them on the pile or maybe the next morning if it's an exigent circumstance that they will look at those devices. But in our case, we wouldn't do that. We would get to them as fast as we could, and we would triage them, and we would work them right there on scene. In fact, that is what I began to do. i come with my response kit, I got write blockers in the vehicle, I got my forensic laptop, I've got all my dongles, I've got all my tools, and I just start working those hard drives right then at a triage level to see if there was anything. Now, at that time, this case is a little bit older, but it's still a good example. We're using Magnet's IEF, Internet Evidence Finder. Look, Axiom out there and is much more robust. It's not an iteration of IEF, it's its own entire forensic tool. But at this case we're talking about, I start triaging those devices.
0: Let's talk a little more about triaging tell me exactly what you were doing here so you got these laptops and and triaging a lot of folks probably think that means something you know maybe from the medical perspective so from a digital evidence perspective let, let's break that down a little bit
1: yeah, it's a bit of a chess game I'm going to go in there and again I'm looking I got to step back thousand foot view thousand yard view whatever look down bird's eye view in my mind and think okay here's the scene What is the digital evidence and which digital evidence do I think based on my experience, previous examinations, and having been a regular detective doing homicides and burglaries that might be more in play? Well, I probably would have went for the cell phone first, to be honest with you, but it wasn't there. So I have these two computers and really at that point I have to pick and then I am connecting them via write blockers to this forensic laptop and then I have to start looking at those artifacts from those file systems on those hard drives. Now, for me, it could be any artifact. I mean, it's really a chess game you could pick. But the first thing I want to look at is web activity. And why web activity? Because web activity, if it's there, can give us mindset. Right? It can tell us or put us in the shoes of the behavior of that person. What is their mindset? Look, I tell people when I teach web-related artifacts especially that people lead three lives. Well, not everybody leads those three lives. Kim doesn't lead those three lives, hopefully. But a lot of people lead a public life. We all do that. People have a private life. We all have that as well. But there is a segment of the population that also lead a secret life. And if you want to know that public, private, and secret life, that behavioral mindset, look at those web artifacts. Follow those web artifacts that build those digital footprints, that digital trail. And that's the first thing that I wanted to do when I got this to triage that.
0: So what are some of those web artifacts? You mentioned searches. What else might we find?
1: It it was a gold mine. Uh, I have another case where, uh, and everybody, there's probably a lot of people listening that have even better cases. I'm just getting to tell this one. But um, I began looking at those artifacts and I have Google searches, search terms that are entered into Google, looking specifically for certain things. Now, remember, when I first arrived and I get briefed on this case and anybody who's done these kind of cases like yep she showed up to get her stuff he got mad crime of passion murder second I would argue not that we when we don't know we don't know and hopefully every detective every investigator is going to treat every crime like a murder first or a premeditated planned crime until they truly know but it clouds your vision I think and the way you investigate a murder first, a premeditated murder, let me use the terms everybody gets, versus a crime of passion might be a little different, and the questions you might ask are very different. In fact, you know, I always like to say I don't walk into an interview, if I can help it, without a loaded gun, a loaded pistol, not a physical real pistol, meaning I don't like to ask questions I don't already have the answer to. Sometimes we have to do that, and sometimes we do do that to try to elicit information. But I like knowing everything I can before I go running in there. I'm going to slow down, and I want to know. Or in that my cyber job, I want to feed that frontline investigator, that frontline interviewer, all of that information so they are better prepared and have an understanding. So when I'm looking at the Google searches... Guess what searches I have? Tell me. Where do I buy a 38 handgun? Where do I get 38 ammunition? What? You know, literally it's one of those moments. If you could see me sitting there on my little forensic laptop with my right blockers, looking at those internet artifacts, I'm going, huh? And then I look at the date. And the date is three, five days, three and five days prior to right now where I'm sitting with the dead body in the other room guess what now there's no guesswork now we don't have to well did they get in an argument with no no this is a murder first this is premeditated crime this is not a crime of passion that's a very different investigation that's a very different sentencing range in fact based on that digital evidence the prosecutor initially went once he was caught and issued the charges they put on half a million dollar bond when the marshals brought him in and they were seeking the death penalty in this case first time in probably 15 years they had even gone after the death penalty but it it was because in 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 of course initially he wasn't speaking and he was lawyered up but guess what i went knocking on doors i went knocking on computer doors and I found this this uh, nice citizen who peeks out the window all day long, known as Google search engine, that went, hey, uh, yeah, I kind of saw something here. He was looking at how to buy 38 guns and 38 ammo prior to this little arranged meeting for her to come up here. So that independent third-party witness, which was a digital witness – told us this was actually a murder first and when you sit there and you know it then I can turn to my investigative team and I say hold up because we were hoping to get him in custody that evening it didn't work out right he was on the run the marshals did a great job but I could turn to my team let's say he had been arrested right at the scene and said lawyer I can walk into my investigators and say just so you know This is the internet history. This is the mindset. This is the behavior. He was researching. He was planning. This didn't just happen spur of the moment, crime of passion. I wonder how many murder seconds in our language, how many crimes of passion have we investigated and prosecuted that were really premeditated? And we just never knew.
0: And you wouldn't know without actually knowing maybe some of these things that happened behind the scenes prior to. And in this instance, the the digital evidence helped to answer those questions
1: for you. And the other part of that, to take that another step further, with this analogy that drives me insane, and I get it. People have money issues and resource issues, and community has uh, lots of needs, right? But I have to wonder how many... Major incidents, major crimes, critical incidents, whatever term you want to use, occur and are investigated still where nobody knocks on the door of the digital witness and asks if they saw anything.
0: And just relying on old fashioned detective work. Yeah, to
1: solve they're, the crime. they're not leveraging the possibility or potential. Again, may not be there. The computer just might have, hey, where's a good enchilada recipe? Right. And I got woken up and I got drug out and I made a lot of good overtime, but it didn't do anything for the case. But in this case, it worked and it was the witness that told us, hang on, folks, he had been planning this. And that's a very, again, different investigation, different sentencing guidelines, different prosecution that we may not ever have known if the evidence wasn't present and someone didn't go looking. So hopefully, I would like to think, I know, uh, what are the statistics, I think the FBI, I think the Bureau says that uh, 98% of the cases they're involved in have some form of digital evidence associated. I mean, it's that high. Um, Not that it's always in play, but I think that every criminal investigation, whether we can get to it or not, you have to stop and say, okay, is there digital footprints that lay alongside those physical... You have to check that box and you have to go out after it. Um, Certainly, I get resources and not everybody has that ability, but uh, I lay awake and think about that and it drives me nuts.
0: So in, in working this case, then, you were able to provide that digital evidence along with the other evidence, which I'm assuming was packaged all up together uh, for the prosecution, in order to be able to present that information to the court system in order for uh, it to get moved along within the legal process, right?
1: Correct. Yeah, and, and, and don't think that the triage is the end of that story. Certainly with a major case, critical incident, the triage at the scene allows us to have an answer that night, that night while he's on the run, hoping that we get him. We know that this is a premeditated crime. Now, I'm still going to do full forensics. I'm still going to do uh, all kinds of different techniques. You know, it's, it's not, oh, you know, wash my hands. That's the end of the day. Here's your report. No. I'm going to take a secondary look. I'm going to reinforce all that. Look at other artifacts that are there. But uh, on this case, it really did turn out to be just the internet history. And that internet history certainly showed that mindset and and that premeditation. So it was fantastic for us.
0: So in in doing that deeper dive then on the digital evidence, you were able to look at some other things that may take longer for you to process than I'm assuming and, and longer for you to actually find some of those details in order to provide those to the investigator and to the prosecutor as well.
1: Yeah, I'm running a triage, uh, like I said, at the scene, just trying to get anything that might give us a clue as to what happened to this poor person in the room next to me. I keep mentioning that because she's still on scene with these horrific injuries. Um, But certainly when I get back to my lab, I I actually will seize the digital evidence myself. Um, So, you know, I handle it in proper ways that we do with electronic evidence. But, you know, I'm going to get it back to my lab and I'm going to be able to then, you know, create forensic images of those hard drives and just those forensic images into, you know, I always, with a critical incident or major incident, There, you know, it's a toolbox approach. We'll use couple or multiple tools, depending on what it is that I'm trying to do, and we'll work through that and write up a very comprehensive report. But the point is, you know, even before all that happens, because sometimes some models still, agencies are doing that. And you know, it might be days, it could be weeks, it could be months, God forbid, uh, how busy they are. And I would argue uh, when a, a major crime or critical incident is occurring, when it's hot, it's hot. And when it's not, it's not. When a crime goes cold, it's a much heavier lift. That's why we have these great shows about cold cases and successes, but how many cold cases are just that cold? So when it's hot, Right, We have a whole show about the first 48 hours, and it's absolutely true how critical that first 48 hours. But forget the first 48. Let's talk about the first six. They know this was a premeditated crime that he had set her up and lured her to her death. If you're an investigator with a dead body laying inside the residence, how valuable is that for you?
0: Good information to know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's the key about leveraging that digital evidence. And, and what I loved about our model, and again, I, I admit we were lucky to have the resources and support, is that, you know, that the digital detective or analyst or whatever the title might be is embedded right there with that major, uh, major case unit, that critical incident unit, whatever it is, hand in hand walking down. So as they're talking through their evidence, their theories, their interviews, He's going. Hey, did you get a phone from that person? Did Did, did you think about this? Would you know? They, they, they're there to screen it for those other digital witnesses that could be of use in that case.
0: Let's talk about this for a second and, and just do a little bit of a what if. What if there had been a newer type of a mobile device or two that had been there at the scene for you to look at. Tell me what kinds of artifacts or what kinds of digital evidence might you have found if you had one of those.
1: Well, certainly uh, part of it is inculpatory or exculpatory, right? Maybe, you know, maybe you're ruling somebody out, but inculpatory, let's say that, that he wasn't at the scene, but he had left that behind and said that he wasn't there. But maybe we can put it there and look at geolocation data. Maybe we're looking at cell tower data. We're looking at those artifacts to see if it in fact places him uh, at the scene uh, of the crime. You know, the if, the if we're talking about a mobile device, a phone, if the phone is there and they're not there, they could make the argument, I was never with the phone, so we have to try to put them together. So that phone's going to have artifacts just like the computer that's going to show interactions with that device. We already talked about search terms and searches going on or maybe just let's say it's an iOS device and has some kind of knowledge-see artifacts or some artifacts where they're interacting with different things. It is going to be that, that tie that 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 the person was actually interactive with that device and including Really, and I didn't mention this, we're looking at that physical crime scene and we can see the computer or we can see maybe there's a mobile device there. And we have the investigators there, but they're not going to think also about that cloud data. And really, cloud data is massive. We know how these devices work anymore. They're tied to the cloud. So if we're an examiner and we're sitting at our, our bench and we have an iPhone sitting there on the left side and an Android sitting on the right side, well, guess what? That iPhone has how much cloud associated with it?
0: At least five gigs.
1: Right. You got it. That Android almo- doesn't have to, but almost assuredly it's going to have a Google account, a Gmail account uh, associated with it. H- how many gigs of cloud is it going to have associated?
0: At least 15, maybe.
1: You got it. At least 15. You're an examiner. You know these questions. So guess what? That's a 5-gig thumb drive that's at the crime scene. Now, it's not physically there because the phone is there, but that 5 gigs is in the cloud, but it's touching the phone that's at the crime scene. Same with that 15-gig thumb drive. I'm using the analogy of a thumb drive. It's the cloud I'm talking about. With the Android device, device, we have to account for it. Now, we either choose to look at the phone and forget about that 5 gigs or 15 gigs And maybe that's the right answer. Maybe we don't have legal authority. Maybe we don't have nexus. But if we don't pursue the cloud data, we've made a decision. And we are deciding every time we analyze a phone and not do that. Now, I know that can be very overwhelming because there's preservation letters, and then there's subpoenas, and then there's search warrants, which hopefully – you're having support with your investigators to do that. Usually I was a one-stop shop for my agency, I told you. If it was a major crime, I was just taking care of all of it uh, because I had the training and experience. But, um, you know, you're, you can't live in isolation anymore. And I really stress that because, to be honest with you, you know, we get to work, um, uh, my team works with a, a just about every agency out there and we're in a lot of people's shops, but I'm still a little surprised that I see a lot of people in law enforcement that they're they're overwhelmed. I they get in they have the phones and they're extracting the phones, they're analyzing the phones, they're looking at the phone artifacts, but they're not reaching back to the cloud or exploring reaching back to the cloud. And it's not just more, it's not just the same. It's not just backups. It's different. It's deleted, it's geolocation. It is, you, you don't have the full picture if you're simply looking at the phone. And then it gets even more complex, I get, because what apps are involved and where are those apps located? And now we're talking about, you know, preservation letters and search warrants to multiple apps. So it's easy, and it, at least in my mind, if I have a major incident and I have a phone in front of me, let's just say it's an Android, check, extract the Android, look at the artifacts, what story does it tell? Oh, preserve Google because it's going to be associated. Let's get a search warrant if we have legal authority, a probable cause, and let's get that search warrant data, which we can pull down with our forensic tools. We can analyze with our forensic tools, and let's take a look at that data. Great. Now, then we have to go, okay, what other apps are in here and what might be in play? And then, okay, now it's Facebook. We have to go after Facebook. Now it's Instagram. We have to go to Instagram. I get that it's not an easy lift but uh hopefully and i know it's resources but if you're dealing with a critical incident or a major crime that uh, you have a team and we could uh, delegate and support each other in that work and that's how our model was and that's what we did but again um i'm a firm believer On law enforcement and specifically, but you can apply this to the corporate analogy as well, that if you have a serious crime, a critical incident, um, that someone who is a computer forensic examiner or a cyber detective or has that mindset and training is there with that lens on looking at the evidence alongside everybody else.
0: So let's go back and finish up about Dorothy's case. So... Terry, the suspect that uh, you had at first, you you've kind of figured out here through your searching and your triaging that you've realized he may very well be the, the guy that you're actually looking for. So you mentioned the marshals were looking for him then. Is that right?
1: Yep. Found him in Love County, Oklahoma. I don't know why. It was about midnight on a Friday night, as I remember, but they, but they tracked him down in Oklahoma and got him into custody and brought him on back.
0: Okay. Brought him back to Missouri. And then did he go to trial or take a plea or how did this work? No.
1: We were going after the death penalty and he said lawyer. He didn't cooperate. Uh, But then at some point during the negotiation process, he pled guilty, said I did it. And uh, they took death penalty off the table. And he accepted, uh, during that plea, life in prison. So he's in prison as we speak. He, I'm not sure if he's still alive or with us, but yeah, could be uh, this with his age, but uh, uh, he was sentenced to life in prison in the Missouri Department of Corrections.
0: All right. Well, great work on that one, Larry.
1: Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Like I said, uh, if you're out there in the audience, hopefully I didn't sound too preachy, but uh, if you can, if your agencies or your groups are not doing it, um, if you can have that conversation and 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 push for that, I highly encourage that personally because I've seen it pay off. I've seen it pay off countless times. And you get one or two of those victories under your belt, I guarantee you that funding will follow.
0: Larry, thank you so much for joining me today. And this is great uh, example of how digital evidence, again, has become the star of the show for a case. And we appreciate you sharing that with us.
1: Anytime, Kim. It's great to see you. Thanks, everybody. And for those out in uh, the listening land, especially my examiners, my investigators, I appreciate what you do. Stay safe.
0: That's it from us today. Thanks to Larry for coming back on the podcast and sharing this case with us. Remember, if you have a case you'd like to share, write to DFIRL at magnetforensics.com. And thanks for listening. Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Phil Froeklage with production help from Lindsay Ward. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening.